Most everyone here would know, although there are some visitors with us and we welcome you, that in these adult Bible classes in recent months, we have studied God's attributes of his sovereignty, his immutability, the fact that he does not change, his goodness, his love, and his holiness. And this morning, we turn to the scriptures and continue our study of additional attributes of God. Now, I realize that it is possible that some may ask the question in their minds, is the study of God's attributes practical? I know it's important, but is it practical? You may be thinking, and one way I hope you're not, but perhaps you're thinking, would it not be better if we study the Bible's teachings regarding parenting children or courtship and marriage? Well, of course, those topics are very important and they are relevant and practical. And the Bible does indeed have much to say about those topics. But the study of God from the scriptures is our highest privilege as those who have been made in the image of God. And the study of God's attributes in particular is not only a great privilege, such a study is indeed extremely relevant and practical. You should never think that the study of theology, the study of God is somehow not relevant, not practical. Listen to one contemporary Christian writer who explains why the study of God and his attributes is indeed vital for the spiritual and practical good of Christians. And here's what he wrote. Many of us today sadly succumb to despair and become cynical, bitter, hurt, and ineffective as Christians. Why? Perhaps it is because we are burdened with false expectations of the Christian life built directly on a false understanding of who God is. We are crippled by a shallow knowledge of our limitless, our infinite God. That's one author. But now another contemporary Christian author wrote the following in order to emphasize the priority for Christians to study the Bible's teachings regarding God and his attributes and his words and his works. And so that author, another man, wrote this. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is not inadequate technique, insufficient organization, or antiquated music in the churches. Those who want to squander the church's resources, manpower, time, and money, bandaging these scratches, as it were, in the churches, will do nothing to stop the flow of spiritual blood that is spilling from the church's true wounds. The fundamental problem in the evangelical world today is that God rests too inconsequentially upon the church. Too inconsequentially upon the church. That is, God is unimportant. God is not significant to many in the churches today. God's truth is too distant, 
His grace is too ordinary. His judgments are too benign or gentle. His gospel is too easy. And his Christ is too common. So brethren, that's the end of that quote, we need to study God as he's revealed in the scriptures and we need to know God better, which means we need to take time in our individual lives, in our family lives, here on the Lord's Day as well. We must ask God to revive and strengthen our love for God and for God's truth so that we will learn more about God and his character and his works, so that we will have our hearts truly ravished with God himself, so that we will not be cynical or bitter or ineffective as Christians, but rather we will be trusting God, hopeful in God, joyful in God, and bear fruit as Christians here in this world. So as we take up our study of the attributes of God once again this morning, I would like to remind everyone of a vital truth which I stated in one of the early classes regarding the organic unity of the attributes of God. When we study the attribute of God's holiness, for example, we must not place that attribute in a box isolated from the other attributes of God. We must understand that God is holy in his being, words, and works. God's holiness is woven into all of God's attributes, as it were. We speak of his holy love. We speak of his holy wisdom. So by way of illustration, and you don't need to turn to this passage to underscore this reality that we should not place any of God's attributes in a box, as it were, but remember that God can't be divided into parts. By way of illustration, in John 19, verse 23 and following, we read, The soldiers, therefore, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to every soldier apart and also the coat. Now the coat was without seam, woven from the top throughout. They said, therefore, one to another, let us not rend it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. So as with the outer coat that the Lord Jesus Christ wore when he was on earth, which was without seam, woven from the top throughout, so are the attributes of God, they are without seam. And as the soldiers said, let us not rend the coat, so let us, as we study the attributes of God separately, let us not rend them one from another, but remember that the attributes of God are all woven together, as it were, for God cannot be divided into various parts. Though we do study the attributes separately because of our feebleness of mind and heart in order to endeavor to begin to know God according to his word. So this morning, we take up an attribute that is indeed mind-expanding, heart-expanding, mind-boggling. It is the fact that God is infinite. God is infinite. 
the larger catechism of the Westminster Standards, in question number seven, asks the simple yet profound question, what is God? And the answer to that question is this, God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, etc. So in previous classes, we briefly considered the biblical truth that God is infinite in his goodness. When we looked at that attribute of God's goodness, one part of that consideration and study was that God in his goodness is infinite. The same with his holiness. Today we will consider this attribute, that God is infinite, and endeavor to begin to try to grasp this truth about God. To state that God is in and of himself infinite in being, according to the Catechism, it means that God is free from all limits of character, free from all limits of power, limits in knowledge, limits of time, and limits regarding space. As one Puritan stated, God cannot be measured nor circumscribed, which means bounded or limited. God cannot be measured nor circumscribed by any place but fills all places without multiplying or extension of his essence. Now, when you stop and think about that statement, I hope you realize it's a statement you should hear again to try to understand, to begin to understand who God is. He fills all places without multiplying or extension of his essence. Consider briefly this contrast between God the Creator, God the infinite Creator, and man the creature. God is infinite in his being, man is finite in his being. We occupy space. As I look out on you, I can see that reality. We are limited by time, but this is not true of God. God is infinite in his wisdom, but man is finite in his wisdom. How limited, how short-sighted, how ignorant, how deficient, how unwise man is. But this is not true of God. God is infinite in his power. Man is very finite in his so-called power. Man cannot even accomplish all the work he purposes to accomplish in one hour. But that is not true of God. He is infinite in his power. This truth that God is infinite is found in numerous portions of Scripture, even when the word infinite is not used. In Solomon's prayer of dedication of the temple in Jerusalem, he proclaimed this truth that God is infinite. And I'd like you to turn there now in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 27. 1 Kings chapter 8 and verse 27. 
Solomon's prayer of dedication proclaimed the truth that God is infinite, that he cannot be measured, he cannot be placed in a box. 1 Kings 8, 27. But will God in very deed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain you. How much less this house that I have built. Now listen to the words of the Bible commentator Dale Ralph Davis concerning this passage in 1 Kings 8. Dale Ralph Davis wrote the following about this verse. Here Solomon confesses the uncontainability, the unboxability of God. Here is the God who bursts all our categories and frustrates all our attempts to surround his majesty. Here is the immensity of God. Will God really dwell upon earth, let alone in a temple? Why, the heavens, even the highest heavens, cannot contain him. So the words of Dale Ralph Davis. And contemplating Solomon's words, God would have us stand in awe of who he is as the infinite God, which the heavens of this universe cannot contain. And yet notice, while standing in awe of this one true living and infinite God, we must also behold the words of Solomon's prayer, which follow this declaration in verse 27. So in your Bibles, look at verse 28. Solomon in verse 27 declares this reality that God is infinite. And then in verse 28, note what Solomon continued to say. He's praying to God. Yet have thou respect unto the prayer of your servant and to his supplication, O Jehovah my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which your servant prays before you this day. So you see here, no sooner does Solomon confess God's immensity and infinitude in wonder and praise in verse 27, than he asks God to notice his prayer and listen to his plea for grace in verse 28. So you see, the infinite God can be petitioned in prayer by finite creatures of the dust who are sinners when they approach this God by means of sacrifice, which is what Solomon, of course, did. For Solomon, the sacrifice was an animal sacrifice, which foreshadowed the eventual sacrifice of the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. Solomon's prayer teaches us that God's transcendent, infinite being does not destroy or hinder intimacy. This is something Dale Ralph Davis points out. God's transcendent, infinite being does not destroy or hinder intimacy when we come to God in his appointed way. And for us in the New Covenant, of course, that appointed way is to draw near to our infinite God by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God. But now turn to Jeremiah 23 and verse 23. Another passage that teaches us that God is infinite. 
Jeremiah 23, verse 23. <clears throat> Jeremiah 23, 23. Am I a God at hand, says Jehovah, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places so that I shall not see him, says Jehovah? Do not I fill heaven and earth, says Jehovah. There we stop the reading. These verses certainly reveal a number of truths about God. He is omniscient. He sees everything. No one can hide himself from God's all-seeing, all-knowing gaze. In the context of these verses in Jeremiah 23, God knows and will punish the lying practices of the false prophets. That's the context. But God also reveals in verse 24 the truth that he is infinite in his being when he asks the question, Do not I fill heaven and earth? And clearly with this question, God does not mean that he is contained and limited by heaven and earth. We've already seen in Solomon's words in 1 Kings 8, 27, that heaven and the heaven of heavens cannot contain God. But in Jeremiah 23, 24, God was rebuking the false prophets who thought that he was limited in his sight limited in his knowledge, limited in his understanding. But God fills the heaven and the earth with his presence. He is omnipresent and infinite in his being. Turn now to Isaiah 66 and verse 1. Isaiah 66 and verse 1. Isaiah 66, verse 1, Thus says Jehovah, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. What manner of house will you build unto me, and what place shall be my rest? For all these things has my hand made, and so all these things came to be, says Jehovah. We stop our reading there. In the preceding chapter of Isaiah, the Lord revealed that at the end of the ages, he will create a new heaven and a new earth. The present earth is the Lord's footstool, and the present heavens are his throne. Now, if you have a footstool in your home, I have one little footstool in my home, when I put my feet upon it, I don't think much about the footstool. It's very small and insignificant. God is using language to help us to understand how small, how small we are. The earth is the Lord's footstool. And in the light of such astounding truth, God asks the question, what kind of house can you build on the earth the earth, which is my footstool, that can possibly contain me, the living, immense, immeasurable, limitless, infinite God. And hearing these words in Isaiah 66, which reveal these truths about God, we are meant to understand and to feel 
to know, to understand, to feel our creatureliness, our finite nature in the presence of the living God. And as we humble ourselves in awe and holy fear before this infinite God, who makes the earth his footstool and the heavens his throne, we must also read the remainder of verse 2 of Isaiah 66. Notice this. Verse 2 begins, For all these things has my hand made, and so all these things came to be, says Jehovah, but to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and that trembles at my word. Dear Christian, as you think upon these words of Isaiah 66 too, you should indeed be overwhelmed that this God actually listens to you when you seek him in prayer through Christ. To the one who is poor in spirit, contrite in spirit, trembles at God's word. Those who fear God because of who God is, as he has revealed himself in the scriptures, those who are conscious of their spiritual poverty because of their sins, those who are convicted of those sins and their need of a savior, those who hear God's word and believe God's word, which reveals them as infinite in his being, those who tremble with real holy fear upon hearing God's word, those are the very finite creatures that the infinite God looks upon with gracious favor. You need to think about that reality. Those who tremble upon hearing God's word, you, a believer, a creature of the dust, finite with many limits and limitations, the infinite God actually looks upon you and hears your cries. So God is infinite in his being, but closely related to the biblical truth that God is infinite is the truth that God is omnipresent. God is omnipresent. God transcends all spatial limitations and is immediately present in every part of his creation. Everything and everybody are immediately in God's presence. We need to grasp this. It's very hard to grasp, to put our mind, uh, wrap our minds around this. God transcends all spatial limitations and is immediately present in every part of his creation. Everything and everybody are immediately in God's presence. Louis Burkhoff, systematic theologian, wrote, God is present in every point of space with his whole being. Words are always inadequate to really Grasp this. God is present at every point of space with his whole being. The Puritan George Swinock asserted the following. God is neither shut up in any place 
nor shut out of any place. He is above place, without place, yet in all places. God is in heaven, earth, sea, hell, and infinitely where there is neither heaven nor earth nor sea nor hell. It is hard for our little puny brains to begin to understand and grasp these biblical truths about God. These writers have attempted to explain the truth of the omnipresence of God, which is clearly taught in the scriptures. A classic passage is Psalm 139. Turn there, please, to Psalm 139. And I'll begin reading at verse 7. The psalm certainly teaches other aspects of God's attributes. <clears throat> but our focus is upon God's omnipresence. So Psalm 139, beginning at verse 7. Where shall I go from your spirit? Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend up into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there shall your hand lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. If I say, surely the darkness shall overwhelm me, and the light about me shall be night, even the darkness hides not from you, but the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you, for you did form my inward parts. You did cover me in my mother's womb. And there we stop our reading. The psalmist uses contrasts in order to attempt to grapple with and comprehend the truth of the omnipresence of God. The psalmist said, wrote, If I send up into heaven, you, God, are there. In contrast, if I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you are there. Or, in the farthest parts of the sea, even unto the womb of the psalmist's mother, God is always and truly present. James Henley Thornwell, an American theologian of the 1800s, stated the following regarding the omnipresence of God. God not only knows both heaven and hell and governs both, he fills both. In heaven, God there communicates to saints and angels the richest tokens of his love. In hell, the impenitent and devils are made to feel the weight of his displeasure against sin. God is in heaven. God is in hell. Is that correct according to the Bible? Is there biblical support for Thornwell's assertions? The answer is yes. 
Remember the passage from Jeremiah, which we read earlier, Jeremiah 23. Am I God at hand, says Jehovah, and not a God afar off? Can any hide himself in secret places so that I shall not see him, says Jehovah? Do not I fill heaven and earth, says Jehovah. Or Psalm 2. Turn to Psalm 2, please, in your Bibles. Psalm 2 and verse 1. Why do the nations rage and the peoples meditate a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against Jehovah and against his anointed, saying, Let us break their bonds asunder, cast away their cords from us. He that sits in the heavens will laugh. The Lord will have them in derision. You see, God is present in heaven. But now turn to Revelation 14 and verse 9. Revelation 14 and verse 9. <clears throat> Revelation 14, verse 9. <clears throat> and another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a great voice, If any man worships the beast and his image and receives a mark on his forehead or upon his hand, he also shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is prepared unmixed in the cup of his anger. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. It's a very sobering, a very hard to grapple with statement of the Word of God. So Th James Henley Thornwell, his statement, in hell the impenitent and devils are made to feel the weight of his displeasure against sin. You see, there in the presence of the Lamb, there is the punishment of the wicked. So God is everywhere present continually and is never absent from anywhere at any time. God is everywhere present continually and is never absent from anywhere at any time. Now I must give two words of caution and I'm indebted to Dr. Robert Raymond for this helpful insight. So as we contemplate the attribute of God's omnipresent, there are two necessary and vital cautions which must be remembered. And the first caution is this, and here I'm quoting Dr. Raymond, systematic theologian who's now in glory, the doctrine of God's omnipresence should not be construed so as to identify God with a universe, as in pantheism. Nor should God's omnipresence be construed so as to identify God with the impersonal moving force in the world. While God is everywhere present and active in his universe, he, as uncreated, stands off over against the universe that he created and is essentially distinct from it. 
the biblical teaching on the creator-creature distinction is the guardian doctrine against all pantheistic reconstructions of the biblical God, end quote. So when we speak of God's omnipresence, we're not speaking about pagan pantheism. But the second caution Dr. Raymond gives is this. The fact of God's omnipresence precludes taking the biblical depictions of God's ascending and descending, his comings and goings, literally. So when you read in the Bible about such realities of God descending or ascending, coming and going, it's not to be taken literally. God being everywhere present does not literally come or go to or from specific places. Where such language is used, it must be recognized for what it is, metaphorical language indicating or invoking a special manifestation of God's working, either in grace or in judgment. So those are two words of caution as we seek to understand the Bible's teachings that God is omnipresent. Well, what are some lessons from these truths of God's infinite being and God's omnipresence. The first is the truth that God is omnipresent should keep you as a Christian and even a non-Christian should keep you from sinning. The truth that God is omnipresent should keep you from sinning. When you're all alone, it's nighttime, you're in a dark room, God is present with you. When you're on your computer, this especially applies probably to men, you're on your computer, all alone, late at night. God, the living God, the infinite God, is present with you. When you are changing the diapers of your infant child, and the infant child is squirming, crying, and you're feeling the sin of impatience because you didn't get hardly any sleep that last night, God is present with you at the changing table of that infant. When you're at the dinner table and your children are around the dinner table and two of your children start to bicker and fight, and they often do in other settings besides the dinner table, but now they're doing it. You are present, you see it, you hear it, but you must also remember that God is present so that as a father, you do not sin with sinful anger and irritation in your heart or with your words or with your actions toward that sinning child. 
Turn to Proverbs 15 and verse 3. Proverbs 15 and verse 3. A well-known verse, probably to all of you. Proverbs 15, 3. The eyes of Jehovah are in every place, keeping watch upon the evil and the good. Of course, the eyes of Jehovah that is a statement referring really to the very being of Jehovah. Jehovah is in every place, keeping watch upon the evil and the good. So when you're a student and you're taking online classes or you're in a classroom itself and it's time to take an exam, you must remember God is present. He sees whether you are cheating or not. Or you're at your place of work and the boss is very unrighteous, repeatedly unrighteous, ungodly, unreasonable, demanding. And you feel like just speaking out against him or her. You must remember, God is present. Turn now to Acts chapter 10 and verse 33. We must also remember that in a special way, on the Lord's days, in the gathering of his people on the Lord's days, God is present. In Acts chapter 10, where Peter speaks to Cornelius, the Gentile, and all of his household, and they first exchange how this meeting has come to pass, then in Acts 10 verse 33, we read these wonderful words of Cornelius. Now, therefore, we are all here present in the sight of God to hear all things that have been commanded you by the Lord. Brethren, that should be our mindset. That should be the disposition of our hearts. When we come into this building on the Lord's days, we should have this mindset. We are all here present in the sight of God. He is here with us to hear all things that have been commanded to the preacher, as it were, not, of course, in some supernatural way, but commanded to the preacher to preach to us. We need to remember that God is, even now, present with us. So the truth that God is omnipresent should be brought back to our minds and hearts daily, frequently every day, so that we will be guarded and kept from sinning. Easily said, when none of us right now are in a position, I trust, of being tempted, but we need to pray, Lord, help me to remember that you are present in every situation at all times so that I will not sin against you. But secondly, the truth that God is infinite should foster humility 
should foster faith in the Lord, should foster gratitude to God. Turn to Psalm 8 and verse 3. Psalm 8 and verse 3. Psalm 8, verse 3, when I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you are mindful of him and the son of man that you visit him? So here with these words, the psalmist was very conscious of the immensity of God, the fact that God is infinite, and he is just a little creature of the dust, a sinner on the earth, which is the footstool of God. And he declares in verse 4, What is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you visit him? When you think and meditate upon these truths of God being infinite, God being omnipresent, when you do that, it should cause you to all the more realize how little you are. The Puritan Stephen Charnock said that even. He wrote, we need to see how little, I don't know if I'm accurately quoting him, but how little, he repeated it, how little, how little we are. We are little. And yet, as we've seen from Isaiah, God looks to the one who is poor and contrite. He will commune through Christ with such little finite creatures as we are. But we should be humbled by this, that God is infinite and he condescended, condescends to take notice of us. Our infinite omnipresent God has given us the scriptures that we may know him that we may love him, that we may serve him, that we may proclaim his truth to others. And that should humble us that God has done this. The infinite God has done this. The infinite omnipresent God has given his own dear son, the Lord Jesus Christ, as the only savior of sinners. He has given to his people who believe in Christ, his Holy Spirit. When you think of those marvelous gifts that God, infinite God has given us, it should humble us. It should foster in us gratitude to God, and it should cause us to trust in this God. Thirdly, these truths give comfort in the midst of trouble. Turn to Psalm 46, the psalm which we sang at the beginning of this class. Psalm 46 and verse 1. Contemplating these truths that God is infinite and omnipresent gives comfort to the believer in the midst of trouble. Psalm 46, verse 1, God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. A present help, not a future help, a present help in trouble. And therefore, we will not fear, even if the earth do change, and even if the mountains are shaken into the heart of the seas, even if the waters of the seas roar and are troubled, even if the mountains tremble. 
No matter what is going on in our world individually, in our world as a nation, in the world at large, we need to remember that God is the refuge of his people. He is a very present help in trouble, and therefore we do not need to fear. And notice verse 7 in Psalm 46. Jehovah of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our refuge. Again, in verse 11, Jehovah of hosts is with us. You see, God is present with his people. Even in the midst of turmoil and trouble in your individual life, even in the midst of turmoil and trouble in the world about us, the God of Jacob is our refuge. Jehovah of hosts is with us. This truth that God is omnipresent should comfort us in the midst of trouble. So brethren, may God help us indeed to think upon these biblical truths about our God, that we would be kept from sinning, that we would be humbled, grateful, believing, and be comforted even in the midst of trouble. So let's now close in prayer. Our gracious God, we thank you for giving us the scriptures. And we thank you for giving us the Holy Spirit. And we thank you for giving us the Lord Jesus Christ. And we come in his name and ask that you would write these truths about who you are upon our minds and our hearts, and that they would affect the way we think and the way we speak and the way we live, the way we act and the way we react. Lord, we cry to you for your glory, for your honor. Work in us that we would think upon these truths about you, our great, immense, infinite, perfect, loving, holy, gracious, kind, and omnipresent God. Help us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.